Pain. Sorry, Carol King. My illness got me locked up in pain. You're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, your host, and with me today is Dr. Stephen Stanos. Dr. Stanos is an assistant professor in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at the Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern University in Chicago, Illinois. He is medical director of the Center for Pain Management at the Rehabilitation Institute of Chicago. He is co-chair of the Pain Task Force of the American Academy of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation and a section editor for the American Pain Society Bulletin. Today, we're discussing our current understanding of the mechanisms in chronic pain. Welcome, Dr. Stanos. I appreciate your joining us at the Clinician's Roundtable. Thanks for having me, Dr. Rutenberg. How long does a patient have to be in pain before it's finally classified as chronic? Well, most patients, ideally, we think it usually is between three to six months. But when we look at patients who present with a pain problem, many times they've had months pain for a number of months before they would even see their primary care doctor and then on to the specialist. So ideally, it's probably within three to six months. Unfortunately, we see patients much later than that. Seems like everybody waits till the very end before they finally get to the right specialist these days. Besides the duration, is there a difference between what's actually going on in acute and chronic pain? Yes, there is. And I I think on one side, we can say there's a difference between acute and chronic. But then as we've started to understand the mechanisms, we've also been able to say that there's actually a lot more that they have in common. So the, the old thinking was that acute pain was reversible. Most patients recover completely. Mostly it's described as more nociceptive or traumatic pain. And the body does a good job of healing itself. And then we, as physicians, may help with medications and therapy. Chronic pain is a little different there because of the chronicity, there's a really a change in the nervous system. And with those changes, many times those changes can be permanent. And so we see patients with chronic nerve pain, chronic low back pain, and what happens is their nervous system kind of upregulates. And because of a simple back pain problem, for example, they can develop a pain-related depression, pain-related sleep problems, and it's all based on just these common mechanisms that are involved in the body that start to, unfortunately, start doing bad things for us. Could you talk a little bit more detail in terms of what some of the neuroanatomic or neurophysiologic correlates are, what the changes are that are actually taking place? Yes, there's a number of mechanisms. And if we start from the periphery, for example, a patient that may have shingles pain, they have a skin irritation, a skin infection, nerve infection, they develop the receptors in the periphery get upregulated and get almost hypersensitized. And that actually ends up causing the signal at the spinal cord to be increased as well and then to the brain. So what happens is the whole nervous system is affected. So something that happens in the periphery actually affects the spinal cord and then the the brain itself. And so that's why over time, a lot of our chronic pain patients start to be more depressed. They start to feel more anxious and their sleep gets dysregulated. And a lot of those mechanisms involved include serotonin, norepinephrine, GABA, which is an inhibitory chemical in the body, glutamate and substance P, which are excitatory chemicals. Those are some of the main players that we now can notice are affecting the whole nervous system. And that's why now I think we can safely say chronic pain is really a kind of a brain disease. That's an interesting concept, brain disease, because a lot of talk about neuroplasticity. And you had mentioned that the changes are permanent so that once the process evolves at the level of the brain, it, it is fixed? Well, there can be some permanent changes. And, and actually, our research center, the Center for Pain Studies, did a study of low back pain patients, and they did morphologic test from an MRI. This is a high-grade MRI type of system. And they were able to show brain degeneration in very specific parts of the brain 
in this subset of chronic pain patients. And when they looked at this, this was separate from depression and anxiety. What they found was those areas, the two specific areas, were important in how we respond to pain, the affective component to pain, and the other area was important in how the body perceives pain. And it might help us understand that this area of brain degeneration may be responsible why we can't control pain sometimes. The emotional part becomes such a big player in this, as well as the kind of diffuse nature of the pain seems to increase. So actually maybe besides plasticity, where plasticity implies bending and reversible back to you know normal, there's actually some chronic degenerative changes as well. So it's just been a huge area of interest now with our understanding with functional MRI imaging. We can actually see the brain and see what's happening with patients in pain, whereas before it was really a black box. With this, all this information, are you able to make any kind of prospective predictions as to which patients with acute pain will resolve and which ones will go on and develop chronic pain? That's a good question. If we can really you know, predict which patients can develop from acute pain, chronic pain, there have been genetic studies and genetic markers have been identified which may make a patient more prone to be more sensitive to pain. And there's also been other genetic markers with specific pain disorders. So I think from a genetic standpoint, just as genetics is, a, is evolving with other fields of medicine, we're also seeing that in pain community. And then that's also been seen in trying to devise and develop medications that may be you know, genetically developed to help certain patients with a certain genetic propensity. So I think genetically, there's been some more evidence. Beyond that, from a behavioral standpoint, I think you can look back at how patients respond, maybe their pre-morbid psychiatric state, their psychologic state, uh, how they cope with pain. That may be able to help predict if they're going to develop chronic pain. I'd like to welcome those who are just joining us at the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and with me today is Dr. Stephen Stanos, Medical Director of the Center for Pain Management at the Rehabilitation Institute of Chicago. We're discussing mechanisms underlying chronic pain. Are there particular pointers you could give out to our audience that they might sort of look for as a red flag in a patient who comes in with acute pain to says that they're at risk for going on to chronic pain? Yes, I think there are some risk and some, maybe some red flags that you should look for in patients that come in with chronic pain or acute pain and, and trying to predict if they would develop chronic pain. I think you need to look at what's their kind of pre-morbid psychologic state. Are they good copers? Do they have, you know, catastrophic kind of thinking? Those kind of patients with that psychologic background, you know, may have more problems with an acute pain problem, be more anxious, and then, you know, start to guard more and develop some of those other bad behaviors that could lead them to a chronic pain problem. The other markers, I think, to look at from a medicine standpoint and trying to predict if a patient's going to develop an addiction problem would be, you know, do they have a history of tobacco use? Do they have a history of alcohol use? Because a lot of those kind of pre-morbid markers may also help predict, you know, problems with other substances, including, you know, pain medications as well as such as, you know, opioids or other pain medicines that we would use. So I think you need to look at pre-morbidly how are they psychologically and actually psychosocially, and sometimes that can help guide how you're going to treat the patient and what you need to look out for. You mentioned about opioids. You wrote an article, The Biopsychosocial Assessment for Chronic Opioid Use. What can you teach us from that study? Well, we wrote a review on just looking at the different aspects of uh, patients. And what I think we were able to talk about is, is now within primary care and even in pain management, there's a lot of different psychometric tests that you can use and use those psychometric tests to help predict depression, help to predict anxiety, help predict aberrant behaviors with patients. So I think our focus on that was really assessing patients early on for risk for addiction versus waiting 
three months, six months, or a year later when things start to unfold. So you can assess their risk factors. You can do a better job and look at their depression and their anxiety as they keep presenting with each month's follow-up. You know, so I think really looking at them a lot closer and more you know, biopsychosocially versus later. And we also talked about the importance of not just asking about their pain score, but also looking at those other you know, psychosocial factors. Could you give us any kind of a guideline for the judicious use of narcotics by primary care physicians? There's a lot of concern among primary care doctors and even some specialists about prescribing opioids because physicians have been prosecuted for prescribing narcotics. Yes, I think there's definitely a, a fear with primary care doctors and pain physicians and other specialists with you know, treating chronic pain patients with opioids, even acute patients with opioids. Unfortunately, physicians with a lot of the stories that are in the news and some of the other things that they've heard might be scared or unsure about and feel unsafe about prescribing opioids for, I think, appropriate patients for acute and chronic pain. But if they do you know, this basic assessment and document well, I think they're at really minimal risk to have difficulties. The physicians that have had problems, they've been doing grossly negligent prescribing habits, and actually their practice of medicine has been beyond questionable. So we actually like to explain to physicians that they can use this kind of simple concept of the four A's. And the four A's was coined by Steve Pasek, who's a kind of a leader in the area of addiction medicine. And the four A's include analgesia, activities of daily living, adverse effects, and aberrant behaviors. And if you can just document those four things and, and really use that as your almost like your soap note when you see your patient and then address those, you pretty much cover the important areas that I think the DEA would want you to cover and it would actually be within reasonable medical practice. So the analgesia is important, the activities of daily living, are they functional, what's the individual patient's goals, what are they improving with since they've been on the pain medicine, is it helping them do certain things? The aberrant behaviors would be, are they running out early for medications, are they taking too much too quickly, are they taking medications at quantities they aren't supposed to, all those typical things that sometimes our patients do, which don't necessarily mean an addiction problem, but just means that they're not doing things correctly. And the last is adverse effects, constipation with regards to opioids, cognitive dysfunction, and the typical things that may be associated with opioid use. So I like to explain to physicians to really concentrate on those four A's and use that as part of your assessment as well as part of your treatment plan. Well, that's a very helpful message to our audience. To segue from systemic to topical agents, is there anything effective that you can kind of rub on a sore knee or bad elbow? Uh, well, that's actually a, a really a big area in the pain medicine. There's been two formulations of topical NSAIDs just in the last year that have been FDA approved and have been marketed. So there's different types of topicals. There's topical anti-inflammatories, which have been used for a number of years in Europe, and actually most of our research has been in Europe because they've been so extensively used. And the other area would be topical lidocaine, which is developed in a patch form as well as a gel. And there's also topical tricyclic antidepressants that you can use for neuropathic pain. And that whole area is really expanding because as the pharmaceutical industry gets better at developing better products, they're developing products that can be absorbed deeper in the skin. And because of that, we're probably getting a better clinical response. So there are patients, you know, we've been using these in the benefit of the topicals is there's minimal to no risk for any systemic effects, especially if you look at the topical NSAIDs as well as the topical lidocaine. So you have found them to be very effective? I think in certain patients, and I think it's important also that to understand what's out there over the counter. Our patients are using a lot of the topical preparations, such as the cold or the menthol products. The counter irritants have been around for a number of times, as well as the heat patches and cold patches. So I tell physicians, 
spend about 10 or 15 minutes in your pharmacy, look and see what patients are using. You read the back of the boxes at one of your local pharmacies, and you can really get a good idea of a lot of the different products are out there. I also tell patients to bring in the boxes and the containers of those products they're using, and then they bring the information right to you, and you can quickly learn what these different products have. A lot of these mind-body techniques can really help people control their bodies, and so things like biofeedback, relaxation training, deep breathing, those type of things can really help patients, I think, decrease their tension and decrease their pain. So that, to me, is, I think, kind of one of the secrets in pain management that has been underutilized has been more of these mind-body techniques that patients kind of add to their treatment regimen. I'd like to thank Dr. Stephen Stanos, who's been my guest, and we've been discussing the current state of knowledge and the mechanisms of chronic pain. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your comments and questions. Please visit us at ReachMD.com and explore our on-demand and podcast features, which gives you access to our entire program library. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I wish you good day and good health.